you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen. Maybe democracy doesn't just happen. As the past few weeks have definitely shown us with a serious flag issue. But that is the point of, of, of democracy is that the public gets involved, gets, gets to have this say, and gets to influence decisions made by government. And no better demonstration of that than with our guest and what he's achieved today. Gideon, how are you doing? Rob, uh, great in yourself. It's always awesome to to be here um, on the high and on your show and talk to you. And uh, I hope you've been keeping well as well as the listeners. <laughs> Certainly have been keeping well. Well, entertained by, by government's decisions lately and the events that, that are happening in here we can we can you know the great thing about south africans is that we can sit back and laugh and humor is definitely a, a all-around good good feeling and incredible medicine that does tend to distract us from this, the consequences of bad government decisions and in the intro i was, I was just introdu- introducing you and talking about the firearms Con- control act which is a highly controversial piece of legislation which is surprisingly been around for quite some time but onto more of that, I'm sure you can tell us more about that. But before before we do that, who is Hideon Jubeir? Tell us a bit more about you. So I'm actually just jeepers. It's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> up, in, up until rather recently, I was a, a professional airline pilot. I've been involved in the firearm owning community as such, if we can call it that, since about 2012. I've written extensively about it. I've been involved in it as its own segment of civil advocacy, if you could call it that. And um, I've subsequently moved on to to more full-time public participation facilitation, if you can call it that. So a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none, I suppose, is the best description. (laughs) Definitely not a master of anything. Quite the opposite. Uh, yeah, uh, I think a lot of people disagree with you on that. You've done some incredible work, especially on this Firearms Control Act and uh, been involved in several organisations in coordinating its submissions to Parliament and amendments and even drafting your own piece of legislation, which will be a supplement to that. Do you want to take us through uh, a bit more about where the Firearms Control Act came from, how long it's been in place and then perhaps the issues surrounding it in its current form? So the Farms Control Act was promulgated into law and became effective in July 2004. This was after the the draft bill was was approved in 2000, or the Act of 2000, but it only became law four years later. And it was an extensive process in the late, mid to late 90s in order to bring it into to being. There was a perceived shortcoming of the old Arms and Ammunition Act and the, the supposed purpose of the Farms Contract of 2000 was to address these shortcomings in order to have a marked and meaningful effect on crime and, well, specifically violent crime and general violence in South Africa. And there's been a great deal of interesting developments on that front. We've seen several attempted amendments of the Act over, over the past two decades. And we've also seen very good research on it that came out, independent research, a couple of years ago, which I'd like to touch on at some point, but that's that's later in the discussion. And ultimately, we're again sitting at a point now where the Farms Control Act was, there was 
was an attempted amendment last year. There was a full public participation process. A great deal of that was facilitated by DRSA. I think it was over 150,000 comments, of which I think about 98% rejected it because of the nature of the amendments being that they sought, amongst other very sweeping changes, to outlaw self-defense as a reason to own a firearm in South Africa. And without boring the viewers, you are South Africans, you, you live in the country, I presume, and you are fully appraised as to the, the criminal situation here. But we are the second most homicidal nation on earth for a population of over 10 million. If you're taking general population and just correct for outliers, this includes countries with fewer than 10 million inhabitants. We're about the sixth most homicidal. And we've had record-breaking violent crime rates in, in all aspects of interpersonal contract crime, which is not really the type of world record-breaking thing we want to be. I mean, if we could win Olympic medals for crime, we would be the undisputed champions, I think, every four years. And that's that's the shocking state of it. Mm. And it is very fortunate that South Africans take their personal safety and security as seriously as they do. Otherwise, I think the situation would have been much worse. Oh, no, no doubt it would have been. But yeah, there, there, there's a lot of that comes into question there as well as to who is, are firearms essential to, to personal safety? Do they create more problems? We've seen fantastic arguments from from both sides of the fence you know um even from from parliament where where there's a big drive on on gbv gender-based violence and the issue there is always revolves around uh, domestic violence and firearm firearms as well do they cause more damage or are they an effective means of of protecting people so the problem with South Africa is we have terrible research here. Well, for the most part, terrible research. And US-based research has shown that, yes, firearms is indeed an effective deterrent and an effective tool for personal defense. But I don't really want to bring the US debate into South Africa because that would be a bit disingenuous in the sense that not all aspects are directly translatable internationally. Making international comparisons is, is difficult and quite specialized. However, uh, in 20, end of 2014, beginning 2015, the Civilian Secretariat of Police commissioned the Witt School of Governance to do an independent report with regards to the effectiveness of, of the Farms Control Act of 2000 and, and, and the subsequent gun control legislation in having a meaningful effect on violent crime rates and homicide in South Africa. So the, the, the School of Governance did a very good job. They analyzed a, I think, 10-year period from starting to, well, no, sorry, it was a 15-year period starting in the year 2000 before the Farms Control Act became law and ending in 2015 after it had been law for around about 10 to 11 years. And their findings were quite instructive. The report is publicly available. It wasn't always publicly available. In fact, it was only made publicly available last year with this uh, proposed amendment when a whole bunch of organizations put pressure on the civilian secretary via PIA requests to release it. So they buried this report for, for about seven years since, no, sorry, five years, since 2016, after having commissioned it. And the reason is because the findings of the report go directly in contradiction to what the amendments propose. And if you had to go through all 200 pages of it, which you might if you want to, 
The summary is that fewer than 5% of all crime is relevant to the Farms Control Act of 2000. They could find no evidence at all, uh, or rather no meaningful evidence at all, that it had any impact on violent crime whatsoever. And what they did find is that the strength of our policing pertaining to how well it's resourced, budgeted, how many operations were being launched, a whole range of other criteria, the stronger policing was for a given year or given period, the lower violent crime rates were including gun crime. The stronger farm control legislation was was almost irrelevant. If policing wasn't strong, there would be more violence and more crime and more murder, regardless of how strong the gun laws were. And if there were more policing, regardless how permissive the farm laws were, the, the fewer violent crime there would be. So there's a di- very direct correlation between violent crime and, and the level of policing in our society and a very weak to almost non-existent correlation or perhaps even a reverse correlation between the strength of the, the actual gun laws and the impact it has on these on crime. An additional point was if you look at the recommendations that the School of Governance made is they actually strongly recommended against the authorities indulging in further strict, more strict or stricter gun control legislation. Their words, their direct words were, um, and I'm trying to paraphrase here from memory, were that the authorities must shift their misplaced focus on gun control legislation back to policing, as in refocus on policing as the primary way of solving the problem of violent crime. And there's much to be said for that. I mean, if we analyze that the wheels had come off at the SAPs around about 2011, just after the Soccer World Cup, and we're talking about training resources, the quality of management, a whole range of things, as well as, as the corruption inherent to that organization, the criminality inherent to it at the moment, it's not a surprise that we are sitting with the crime and violence problems we do, especially when we talk about the scourge of GBV. It's an interesting emotional rallying cry to say we need to restrict guns because of violence. But when we look at the available evidence and and, and the scientific analysis done on it, it paints the total opposite picture uh, altogether. Yeah, it certainly does. I'd absolutely love to to read that report. Uh, Perhaps a a summary. I'm not keen on reading 200 pages of of a research report. But... But anyway, that, that's a very interesting, interesting well, I've got observation. Good news. Yeah. I've got good news for you. I was commissioned to write a summary for the Free Market Foundation. Hi. I will send it to you. It's got it's got the key points in it, and it's only one page, I think, around about a page, page and a half. Oh, <laughs> so you, you can you save yourself the pain of going through <laughs> the whole thing. You see, that's why civil society here is like you exist, is to summarize these things into just the pertinent points for us and cut out all all the waffle. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Please do send that to me. And if any of our listeners do do want to have access to that, let me know. Just send a send a, a, a SMS or an, an email to us. Um, you can send the email to onair at com or an SMS to three four five one nine and we shall take it up in there and then ask Hidden to send it to you. But Hidden back on to back onto the legislation. You you talked about strong strong gun laws and strong bits of legislation. What exactly do you mean by by strong legislation? Is is our legislation strong enough or is it inadequate in, in areas? So I was thinking pertaining um 
when you talk about strong strong gun laws and strong policing, what we have in South Africa is possibly some of the least permissive and strictest firearm legislation, uh, firearm control legislation in the world. Um, it is just just short of a de facto ban of civilian firearm ownership, in the sense that it places a colossal administrative and economic burden on anyone who wants to become a gun owner. And the authorities, especially the police, retain such sweeping and strong powers that ordinary citizens that aren't gun owners are not subjected to with regards to what they can confiscate and how to declare you unfit to possess. In essence, as a civilian firearm owner, the police can demand to inspect your firearm, your safe keeping facilities, any of these things at any time that's that's convenient to them. Obviously, without a warrant, they would have to make an appointment, but you still have to make yourself available at any time of their choosing. They're allowed to, or in fact, not allowed to, they are obligated every time you renew a permit to put you through a full criminal record check uh, every five years or, or, or sooner. Um, and anything you do where you are accused of a violent crime or something similar can leave you declared unfit to possess and your property confiscated from you pertaining to farms and ammunition without um, compensation at all. So it's a very it's a very narrow road as a lawful farm owner you have to walk. I know that Oscar Pistorius is often used as an example of, of you know, um, the failure of the so-called gun laws when that was totally the opposite effect. In fact, Oscar Pistorius had committed on at least three previous occasions enough offences for him to have been declared unfit to possess and to have his firearms confiscated long before he murdered Riva Steenkamp. The difference being that the authorities did not act on the complaints lodged against him. Um, so that was, again, a policing failure, not a not a failure of the, the legislation or an indication that the legislation wasn't strong enough. When we talk about strong policing, what the focus is on there is you can measure your effectiveness of your policing rather on the metric of is is there an absence of crime rather than measuring it, you know, with the number of arrests or convictions. The problem with that is in South Africa, we have a great number of people that have become so disillusioned in the police service and in policing as a whole that that a humongous number of crimes go completely unreported for that reason. People don't believe that that the police will act, that they will obtain justice, that there will be a successful resolution or they are just frankly balk at the thought of exposing themselves to the criminal justice systems as complainants or as witnesses. So when you talk about the strength of legislation and the strength of policing, we're addressing two very different aspects. But the strength of our legislation in South Africa is in incredible. It also explains to a large degree why our civilian farm ownership rate is, I think, number 85th in the world. We rank lower than most Western European countries. Uh, as an example, Germany, Finland, Sweden, uh, Norway, the Czech Republic, Austria, France and Italy all own per capita way more civilian guns than we do, um, yet they have a fraction of our homicide rate. And these are not the sorts of discussions I think that we, we, we have regularly in public. Absolutely. And I think that's that perhaps is, is does definitely highlight the the problems that we have in South Africa. It's not it's not the easily availability of of illegal firearms. It's the lack of policing around that. Now there were 
there were quite a few stories um, recently and some time ago around, and there was, there was statistics released in Parliament by by the Minister of Police around illegal firearms, their, their origin, and the police involvement in that. They mentioned that uh, the police lose an incredible amount of, of firearms and ammunition every year. And uh, the firearm amnesty that was offered to civilians to hand in hand in your in your fire hand in your firearm or, or your weapon has um, certainly gone gone wrong somewhere. What do you know? What do you what do you know about that? So Mark Shaw wrote an excellent book on this uh, called "Give Us More Guns," and it's not a long read. So if anyone out there feels they don't feel like uh, taking on a massive tome. You could probably get through this in a in a weekend. The title is "Give Us More Guns," and he details in the book the the process and the prolific nature of corrupt police officials confiscating firearms off gangsters, bypassing the evidence lockers and selling them back to other gangsters uh, for money. So these firearms keep being recirculated. There was, of course, the tip of the iceberg was the whole Colonel Chris Princeless saga where amnesty firearms that were handed in by members of the public for destruction were stolen out of these containers by corrupt policemen, and they were shipped around the country and sold to criminals and gangsters for, uh, I mean, we're talking about thousands of these guns being sold. The difference being to what is stolen from civilians versus what's stolen from the state is when police firearms go missing, and military ones, you very often are looking at fully automatic, uh, actual real assault rifles, uh, like the R4 and R5 series. There's also been cases of hand grenades and anti-tank weapons being stolen from some of the military bases as well. So yeah. when, when we talk about quantities, the big mistake that people make is they say, okay, but civilians still lose more guns than the police do in absolute numbers, allegedly. And I say, well, in absolute numbers, that might be a correct statement. In per capita numbers, when you compare the amount of civilians that own guns versus the amount of policemen out there carrying them, the SAPs lose, I'm happy to go and confidently state, probably lose on average about eight times as many guns as the average civilian does. And the issue is it's also the quality of the firearms that they lose. I mean, civilians don't lose fully automatic weapons. We don't possess them. We, we can't legally own them unless you're a Category A collector, of which I think there's about five in the whole country. And it's also a case of in civilian losses, we have the other problem that parastatals like Praza, ESCOM, Parks Board, uh, that own their own firearms for their own security divisions, those guns are licensed under Section 20 of the Firearms Control Act, and they're treated as civilian losses, including those of security companies. So the average gun owner, who's actually a very responsible and and uh, careful person with regards to how they conduct themselves and, and keep their firearms safe, is lumped in to the same sort of criteria or crowd as security officials who are robbed of their guns as part of their, their higher risk profile of doing their jobs, as well as negligence by other state departments that all kind of gets shifted the blame onto you, even though you have absolutely nothing to do with it. So if you interrogate the statistics a bit deeper, the full picture comes out. But it is uh, it is a horrific story, Rob, no, no doubt about it. But telling the amount of, of state-owned guns that end up in criminal hands 
not due to the policemen being robbed, but due to corruption and criminality within the service that are actively supplying these weapons to very dangerous criminals for money, and that it's become kind of an industry. Oh, it's it's incredible to 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 hear that. It it really is, and it just shows you that statistics can can be manipulated to to definitely suit an an agenda. We're chatting to Gideon Chabert, who's done some wonderful work for many civil society organisations in in the space of of firearms control act and surrounding legis- legislation. Uh, don't go anywhere. We'll continue the conversation in a few seconds. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. Yeah, and welcome back here yeah, to, to this conversation. And if you uh, missed the conversation at the beginning bit, don't worry, it'll be live or available on our Spotify channel or on our website at www.highfm.com. Go there, catch up with some other previous podcasts for previous episodes and take a listen some very interesting interesting guests there but not so interesting as as Gideon Joubert who I am currently chatting with Gideon they let's talk about um GBV violence and in, empowering women there are these two two streams of thought here the one the one side says we should control uh, the behavior of, of men and, and perpetrators of, of GBV, and they need to change and, and, and adapt and need to control them and do whatever. And the other side says we should rather be empowering women to be able to defend themselves against possible uh, attacks by such, such individuals. How does firearms and the Firearm Control Act fit into that? So the Farm Control Act is being treated as a sort of broad-based solution for GBV in the fact that if we take guns away from the civilian population, then women will no longer be murdered with them, which I suppose if one had to look at it from a direct causal vector point of view, it kind of makes sense, but you really have to warp reality significantly in order to come to that conclusion. You know, and I'm not even going to address the fact that that more women are killed by use of other implements than than are shot. I think it was only, uh, 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 and I speak under severe correction, I think only 17% of women, or 27% at most, were murdered by use of uh, of guns by their uh, abuser or by their murderer, and the overwhelming majority of others were killed by other means. So I always found it a curious sort of focus as to say great we have established that if this is removed if this object is removed from the equation then there'll be far less femicide in society which doesn't seem scientific i have not actually seen a single scientific argument that that backs that up the opinion of of gbv now i'm all for saying we need cultural change pertaining to how men see women in society and how they treat them and how violence against women has been culturally normalized and this sort of thing. And that is that is a discussion worth having and that is certainly a conversation worth having. My outlook on it, and I'm not, so, I, I'm not one or the other. I'm not saying we should only do one thing and not do the other. My opinion is that realistically such cultural change will in all likelihood take several generations if it succeeds. In the meantime, what we have 
is a a population of millions of women that remain vulnerable to the predations of violent men, regardless of how many protests we hold, regardless of of how much activism we do, and and regardless of how much awareness to the issue we raise. And that's always been a, a bit of a bugbear for me is people saying, oh, but when I ask them what they're trying to achieve with a specific campaign, they say, oh, we're we're trying to raise awareness. And I say, well, my response to that is, I think we're all fully aware just of how bad the problem is. It is very widely publicized. The statistics are publicly available. You'd have to live under Tora Bora cave cavern of rocks in order to to miss it as as a problem, as opposed to making that our only thing that we do. I am strongly in favor of empowering women to defend and protect themselves from violent men because they they have proven repeatedly to be capable of doing so if they're equipped with the correct mindset, the correct skill set and the correct tools for the job. And that's been a bit of a personal passion of mine is to encourage that mindset development, that skill development and that tool acquisition and to facilitate facilitate it as well and that's kind of where where i am with my thoughts on it i mean gbv is a a gbv also is to me a bit of a inaccurate term it encompasses so much without really giving detail on anything i mean we're talking about women stuck in violent abusive relationships who are either physically or or, uh, emotionally manipulated to remain in those relationships or return to them they may require a very different solution than the physical but if it becomes physically abusive then you know they need the means to physically protect themselves in order to have the time to extract themselves somehow else out of that abusive situation and i think the concept of abusive relationships whether they cut towards the male or cut towards the female victim side of it is something that is not honestly spoken about in society either it is something that is is put under the banner of GBV or put in, uh, under some other banner, but there is no real honest discussion of how do we support people that are stuck in, in abusive relationships that may become dangerously abusive or even to a point where someone might, might end up being killed by the abusive party in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is the, the, the counter-argument to that is men can easily overpower women physically. And a woman in possession of a, of a firearm stands a high high chance of it being uh, used against her, or you know, forcefully removed, or and then used by by the perpetrator against her. Is is there any uh, truth to that to that statement, or is it just a, a you know one of those one of those inconceivable arguments to to hold firearms away from women? I have seen no supporting evidence for that claim ever, and and I've tried very hard to find it. Uh, The closest we came as a a group of people digging into this was the origin of the original quote that you have X amount of chance three times or four times or five times. I can't remember what the original claim was. It's, It's changed so many times over the years that you are so likely to have your own firearm used against you as opposed to using it for self-defense. The supposed origins of that was from the writings of Anthony Altbecker, who have, who has done extensive writing on this type of topic. And we got in contact with him directly, and he was very amicable about talking to us. And 
when we confronted him with it, he said, well, it's interesting because nowhere in any of his writings does he make that claim. And he forwarded a whole bunch of articles to us that he highlighted the quotes. Uh, and in fact, he made the complete opposite claim, or rather he came to the complete opposite conclusion where it is far more likely for someone who is armed and trained to successfully defend themselves than to have their own weapons used against them uh, or their own tools used against them in that instance. And I have to say, I think I'm, I'm going to go with Anthony's view on that one because at least he did the research, whereas the other claim is, is um, not supported. In reality, anecdotally, I know of far more women that have successfully defended themselves against bigger, stronger men. Because here's, here's the thing. Yes, men are bigger and stronger physically as a general rule than, than the average women. You are more likely to be attacked by multiple assailants rather than one. So it is never going to be a fair physical confrontation ever. That is just not going to exist. You, you only see those things in spaghetti westerns where it's Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef squaring off to one another in the, in the town square at midday this dusty road and there's only the two of them having a standoff that that is not how violent confrontations happen in real life they're always dynamic they're always extraordinarily violent and they are always uh, a case of where you're usually outnumbered and have to deal with it again the solution to that as has been my experience and the experience of my colleagues who train people who have been training them for longer than i have is that the attitude and the skills and the physical abilities of the defender pertaining to how fit they are and how prepared they are to to do what's needed to prevail as well as how well equipped they are are the factors that that made the difference and that's no different for women women can certainly and have proven themselves to be very effective at defending themselves against bigger stronger men who are more numerous Absolutely, and I'd not tend to totally agree with you on that. I mean, surely it would be a deterrent to any one wannabe perpetrator who look the other way or consider it, consider their actions uh, if they if he assumed that a woman was was carrying a firearm. Perhaps he would definitely think think twice there. We're chatting to Hidon Jaber, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. Hey, welcome back and we are chatting to Kiri Anjube. If you missed it, don't worry, it'll be available as a podcast on Spotify or on our website. Um, Kirian, as a as a as a wrap up here, uh, you're doing fant- absolutely fantastic work on on this front through through many many uh, different organizations and, and initiatives. How can the public who are interested in, in this topic get get hold of you, support support what you do, or just thank you? So the, the simplest way of getting a hold of me uh, is through my website, which is uh, www.paratus.info. So that is the Latin for prepared, P-A-R-A-T-U-S dot info. And um, if you want to get a hold of me via email, the easiest way is Gideon or Gideon at chscharliehotelsierraguns.co.za. So chsguns.coza. And uh, I, I do enjoy interacting with people who've got uh, questions, queries, differing opinions. Uh, I appreciate I appreciate the interactions. And I think something I'd like the public to take away from this, it's also a bit of a DRSA message, 
as our democracy is protected by active citizens who take ownership of their democracy, your personal safety and security and that of your family is equally taken care of and, and enhanced and promoted by you taking an active ownership in it. I have this old mantra that is so tired. I'm tired of saying it, but I, I, I think your audience may not have heard it yet, which is you are always without exception, the first responder to your personal emergency, whether that emergency is, a, is of medical nature or criminal nature, you are the first person on scene and you are the first person who can exercise a positive resolving influence in how that how that situation plays out and ends. And having the correct mindset, skill set and tools on your person is is a vital foundation to approaching these challenges life throws at us um, the correct way. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think it's absolutely wonderful words. Gideon, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. I certainly hope we can revisit this, come back to it. There's a lot of lot of uh, changes happening within legislative space, and I've no doubt that you can offer us some and, and the listeners some fantastic insights into into what's going on. Well, I'm I'm going to ask the listeners to harass you endlessly if they'd <laughs> like to hear from me again. Um, if you if you don't want to hear from me again, then please also harass Rob and Tim. We don't, we don't <laughs> want that Gideon guy on again. He's rubbish. But Rob, thank you so much for for your time and for the opportunity to speak to you as well as to the listeners. And um, I look forward to to being allowed back on. Fantastic, and so you shall be. And that brings us to to the end of the Dear Parliament show today. If you missed it, feel free to visit the website at www.ifm.com, and. As Gideon says, be more, more, be more engaged in, in what we do and in what uh, you can do as a citizen of South Africa. Get involved, take control of your democracy and of your future. And that's it. We'll, we'll see you again next week. And remember to stay democratically engaged, active and responsible. Ciao for now. <laughs>